welcome and thank you for standing by. All party lines have been placed in listen-only mode until the question-answer session of today's conference. To ask a question at that time, please press star 1, unmute your phone, and record your name. Today's call is being recorded. If anyone disagrees, you may disconnect at this time. It is now my pleasure to turn the call over to your host, Zabby Degato. Thank you, and you may begin. Hello and good morning from the Canada Institute at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. My name is Zavi Delgado and I will be acting as moderator to this ground truth briefing on the Canadian trucker protest. Three weeks ago, a group of aggrieved truckers began a convoy from Canada's west coast to the nation's capital. What has transpired since then has captivated the attention of people in and outside of Canada. And if you're not all caught up, don't worry, that's why we're here. Conservative Party ousted their leader, Aaron O'Toole, in a caucus leadership vote, replacing him with protester sympathetic MP Candace Bergen. Also out of power is Ottawa's chief of police, Peter Slowly, who resigned earlier this week amidst criticism of his handling of the protests. In Ottawa, protesters have blocked roads and set up camp in the area around Parliament, supported by over half a million U.S. dollars raised and sent through online fundraising websites. In response to the protests, Ontario Premier Doug Ford declared a state of emergency in his province, and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau invoked the never-before-used Emergencies Act to grant his government emergency powers, but more on that later. We're joined today by two Ontario-based experts who can hopefully help us make sense of everything that's been happening over the past few weeks. Monique Smith is a former Ontario Cabinet Minister, having served as the province's Minister of Intergovernmental Affairs, Government House Leader, Minister of Tourism, and Minister of Revenue. She was also Ontario's first appointed representative in Washington. She joins us now from Ontario. Good morning, Monique. Good morning, Zavi. And also joining us is Philip Cartwright, Senior Vice President at Global Public Affairs. He leads the firm's transportation, infrastructure, and communities practice, and co-manages its Ottawa office, where he joins us from today. Good morning, Phil, and thank you for joining us. Hi, Zavi. Thanks again. And to all of you in the audience, if you're listening in and wanted to ask a question, dial star one, and our great operators will promptly assist you with getting in the queue. For now, let's start with a look at the protesters themselves, though. What began as a convoy of truckers against a specific vaccine mandate seems to have turned into a broader protest by Canadians against COVID-era rules and the Trudeau government at large. Monique, can you give us some background on what the protesters want and how this situation evolved into what it is today? Sure. Thanks, Abby, and thanks to all of you who are joining us from across uh, Canada and the U.S. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, it's an opportune time to be talking about this because uh, as we speak, um, the Canadian Parliament is debating the Emergencies Act. Uh, the Prime Minister has been up and introduced the debates this morning, uh, and we see police moving in on the Ottawa barricades uh, this morning as well. So there is a lot of activity happening right this minute. So uh, very timely of the Canada Institute and the Wilson Centre to be hosting this, and I appreciate being part of it. Um, the debate, the, uh, the protest started, well, I mean, there's obviously throughout COVID, there have been uh, and concern about vaccine mandates, masks, and uh, a variety of activities that the government has taken to try to keep kids safe. Um, the protests really started in February out west. Uh, there was talk of a trucker's uh, brigade that was going to cross the street. And so uh, gathering 
as it went across the country. I find myself in northern Ontario, and at one point when the trucking brigade went, went through, um, you know, they were closing down the, the roads around the highway here to ensure everyone's safety. Uh, there were supporters across the country who were coming out to support the truckers, providing coffee and snacks and, and respite along the way. Um, I think, for the most part, Canadians believe that the, uh, the convoy would uh, end up in Ottawa spend the weekend, cause some disruption, and go home. And uh, that's kind of what it was expected. Uh, certainly, Ottawa is no stranger to protests. It, they happen often. Uh, they are very well prepared for that on the Hill uh, for a normal protest. Um, but this turned out to be anything but a normal protest. And now we find ourselves three weeks later in the midst of uh, a siege or uh, uh, there's a variety of ways of describing what is happening in Ottawa um, and it also has morphed from a trucker protest against the mandates that they be vaccinated to a kind of lightning rod for all those who are disgruntled and unhappy with any uh, limitations on their lives due to COVID. Um, so we have people who are calling for freedom in these protests, um, who are calling for freedom from mask wearing, from having be from having to send their kids to school with masks. It's, it's a whole confluence of concerns that have come together. And underlying that, or in and around that, um, uh, that has become more visible as things progress uh, and that is causing deep concern. I should say that uh, Ottawa is not the only focus. Uh, we have also seen blockades and uh, activity at borders crossings in Emerson, Manitoba, Coots, Alberta, Surrey, BC, uh, the Detroit-Windsor Bridge, which I know we're going to talk about in some detail, also in Sarnia and Fort Erie. Um, so there, there have been activities across the country, uh, and, uh, and there has been a lot of financial support, which we will also talk about. But I think I'll pass it over to Phil, who's in Ottawa, to give you a sense of what's happening on the ground in Ottawa and uh, how it's impacting people there. Phil? Sure. Thanks, Manik. Um, and thanks again, Zavi, and your colleagues for, for having us, and I agree to be with everybody. Um, so as Zavi mentioned, I, I live in Ottawa. Um, so January the 29th, which was when the original sort of convoy first showed up in Ottawa, uh, seems like a long time ago uh, in terms of, I think, what citizens here, uh, myself included, have been dealing with. I should say I live, you know, about an 11 or 12-minute drive from Parliament Hill, so it sounds really close, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm certainly fortunate that, you know, we, my family and I, haven't been sort of directly impacted. Of course, we, uh, like anyone else that has an office downtown, all the buildings uh, have been shut uh, and locked to outsiders uh, really since the convoy showed up. Um, you know, I think, uh, and as Zabman, you did a very good job, I think, summarizing uh, sort of a chronology of things that have happened sort of at all levels of government um, over the last two and a half, three weeks. You know, I would say um, one thing that's worth mentioning, and this is more of a personal comment, I think, than anything, is you know, Manik, you mentioned the fact that there was an expectation that this protest was going to roll into town, it was going to do its thing for the weekend, and then it was going to dissipate. And that obviously didn't happen. And I think from a, an Ottawa resident's perspective, there are still a lot of 
people who are incredulous at the fact that we knew. Uh, it's not like it was a surprise that the convoy was rolling in. We knew, um, we knew that it was coming, uh, and uh, you know clearly there was a, a lapse in communication between different levels of government, between different levels of law enforcement, uh, and that has resulted in you know this installation that uh, has just become more and more deep rooted over the last three weeks. So. Um, you know, there's obviously, and I know we're going to talk a little bit about the Emergencies Act uh, and the historic nature of it being used this week, uh, which is the first time um, since uh, since the late 1980s when it was uh, first enacted that it is being used. Um, and there was a lot of debate, uh, which is happening as we speak uh, in the House of Commons as to whether or not triggering that act is uh, necessary and whether it's acceptable and whether it should be approved. Uh, but I would say that um, it has been a long three weeks for anyone who lives in Ottawa. And I think, um, you know, you can't, uh, when someone can't go out into the street from their home wearing a mask uh, without some worry that they're going to be assaulted, uh, I think that will qualify as an emergency for some people. So I think, from an, again, from a, an Ottawa resident perspective, we'll all be very happy when this is, uh, uh, when this is ended. Well, we're glad that you and your family are staying safe, Phil. And since you mentioned the Emergencies Act, let's talk about that. Prime Minister sure. Trudeau tweeted earlier today that invoking the Emergencies Act is never the first thing a government should do, or even the second. It is a last resort, end quote. What can you tell us about his decision to invoke the act now for the first time in Canadian history? And are we really at that point of last resort? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, in terms of his decision to use it, I mean, there is, as I'm sure some on the line will know, um, a process uh, to to enacting it. And so some of the earliest steps uh, that happened within the last four or five days, uh, the Prime Minister consulted with all of our 13 provincial and territorial premiers. As was reported after the fact, there were uh, a handful of premiers, four of them uh, in particular, uh, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and uh, Quebec, who were not in favor of, of triggering the Emergencies Act for a variety of reasons. Uh, so he consulted with premiers. He did consult with the leaders of the major opposition parties in the Canadian Parliament. Uh, he also consulted with his own caucus of Liberal uh, MPs. So there was quite a bit of, and obviously in addition to that, um, whether it's um, the Privy Council Office or our Department of Justice, uh, obviously there would have been many, many, many uh, senior officials across the Canadian government who were working with the Prime Minister and his team in the Prime Minister's office to determine um, the viability, I guess you call it, of, of using the Emergencies Act in this particular situation. Um, so, I mean, there are a number of reasons, I think, and I certainly was not part of the discussions, but there would be a number of reasons and calculations and considerations that would go into using the act at this particular point in time. Uh, I do think that a, a significant consideration was the fact that law enforcement at a local level here in Ottawa was not adequately equipped to deal with what was becoming an increasingly uh, volatile and potentially dangerous situation. And again, I'm speaking specifically of the, of the protest that has seeded itself here in downtown Ottawa, but obviously that is extended to um, the blockades that we saw 
uh, at other border crossings at the Ambassador Bridge, other protests which were not nearly as large, but you know we have had other sort of sympathizer protest protests uh, pop up in most of the other major Canadian cities over the last couple of weeks, and uh, from a, a resourcing both people and financial perspective. I think that that was a significant reason why the Emergencies Act was triggered to allow that um, sort of alignment and integration between levels of government and jurisdictions, which there will be many postmortems once hopefully we're through this uh, difficult situation and there will be a very significant postmortem done on sort of jurisdictional um, collaboration in Canada and specifically what didn't happen between jurisdictions that allowed this all take effect. So um, I think that those were some of the things going through the minds of um, the Prime Minister and his senior advisors uh, and other members of Cabinet uh, that got them to the decision to use the, uh, to use the app. And Thank if you I could for jump in, Zavi. Sorry, Zavi, if I could jump in on that. Just on law enforcement, to give a bit of perspective, the Ottawa Police are a city police force. Uh, we also in Ontario have the Ontario Provincial Police that deal with uh, the provincial roads and some municipalities who have agreements with the provincial police. And then there's the Royal Canadian Mounted Police that are the National Police Force. Um, but we don't have in Ottawa a capital police like we do in Washington. So having spent five years in Washington, I was well aware of the capital police and the various police uh, authorities around uh, government. So I lived on C Street, so three three blocks away from the Capitol, and I think my house was policed by three different forces because um, you would see different cars going by. Whereas in Ottawa, it really is just the Ottawa civil, you know, municipal police who are in charge. So there there was jurisdictional discussion going on over the last three weeks about who should be who should be policing this event and how and whether or not they had the jurisdiction or the legal mandate to do so. So one of the reasons, I think, for bringing in the Emergencies Act, as Phil said, was to deal with that jurisdictional question. Uh, it was also becoming a bit of a political hot potato as, you know, the, the city said they didn't have the resources. The city, uh, the chief of police didn't have, said he didn't have the resources. The federal government was saying this is a municipal issue and, and around and around we went. So I think that there's... Um, uh, there's definitely a lot to do with policing and enforcement uh, around the input, Im implementation of the Emergencies Act. And the other piece that I think Phil touched on was the finances. The Emergencies Act allows uh, more um, active, more activity into people's finances. So uh, freezing people's bank accounts, leading uh, to who's, uh, who's donating where. Um, there are more liberties that are allowed under the Emergencies Act. Um, so that, and, and we'll talk about the money, I'm sure, at some point, and that is an important feature in, in kind of choking out the, um, the activists. Uh, how do we stop the money flowing into them? And the third piece on the Emergencies Act, which I, I think Phil alluded to as well, is, is uh, the fact that Justin Trudeau is the son of Pierre Trudeau. And Pierre Trudeau in invoked the War Measures Act during the 1970s FLQ crisis. Uh, and uh, there was a lot of backlash and a lot of historic perspective on that. And I think uh, the Prime Minister was well aware 
of uh, his uh, family lineage around this and uh, want, and was very clear that he was not bringing in the army uh, or any military when he when he said he wanted to bring in the Emergencies Act. And I think that was very much um, informed by his, uh, his family history. So just a little more color there, Zabby. Thank you both for your insight on that. And to all of our listeners who are listening in and want to ask a question to some of our experts, just a reminder, you can dial star one and get into the queue. Our operators will be happy to assist you. Now, you both mentioned the um, what's happening right now with copycat protests popping up around the country, but there are also protests popping up around the world with some copying them in Australia and New Zealand and talks about potential protests in the United States of America, where, of course, I'm calling in from in Washington, D.C. Monique, you spent a lot of time in D.C. as Ontario's representative in Washington. Can you talk about the potential cross-border impact that these protests might have outside of the financial ones, which we'll talk about when we get to the Ambassador Bridge later? Sure. Um, You know, I, I think for most Canadians, it's shocking how much uh, international attention these protests are getting. Um, I do some international work in the uh, democratic institution sphere, and I had an email this week from a colleague in Benay in Africa, um, and uh, he he said, uh, I hope this note finds you well. If you're in Ottawa, I hope you're keeping safe. And I was, it just kind of blew my mind that someone uh, in an, you know, on another continent in a small country that's got a lot of its own problems was thinking about me in Ottawa being part of this uh, siege. So it just goes to show how pervasive the world, the news coverage of this is around the world. Um, and Phil and I were talking before we got on the call just uh, about the kind of skewed view of um, of the of what's going on in Canada by some of the media outlets, uh, particularly Fox which I think is in the U.S. is trying to kind of ferment, uh, foment the, a similar type of uprising, you know, within within the U.S. There's theories of that here, that that's why there's so much coverage on Fox. Um, but even the mainstream media in the U.S. has started covering it. I think part of it is uh, it's unexpected that Canada would be in this position. Um, but uh, I also think it's very telling that uh, Canadians are embarrassed uh, that uh, that this is the view of of us um, around the, the world, and uh, there's there been there's been polling uh, showing how Canadians are feeling about the international view of this, and uh, certainly it's concerning that Canadians are seeming to be spurring on protests in other parts of the world. Um, as far as the, just to focus on the Americans for a second, as you said, I spent a lot of time in Washington. It's a very divided place. Uh, and, uh, you know, no one no one forgets uh, what happened there in January of last year. Um, early on, people were describing this a little bit like our Capitol Hill uprising. I would say, uh, you know, there's no, no level of violence compared to what happened in Washington last year. Uh, and uh, it's... Um, while there are some, there's concern that there are some folks in the background who are fomenting a similar point of view, and we have seen Confederate flags and we have seen swastikas. Uh, it's certainly not to the same level that we saw in Washington last year. Um, you know, I think with invoking the Emergencies Act and uh, and as we see the police starting to move in today, there is a hope that this gets shut down very soon. Uh, Canadian public opinion is definitely um, 
opposed to the protesters. Uh, we've seen four different polls in the last week where, you know, we're at 70% of respondents say they oppose the protesters themselves. Um, 64% say they oppose the protesters' demand to end all pandemic restrictions. So, um, you know, there's a lot of, there are a lot of Canadians who feel that what the protesters are protesting doesn't reflect what they feel at all. And as we see the rollback of restrictions um, across the country, not necessarily in response to the protests, but as we see our numbers of, in Omicron diminishing and we see the restrictions being pulled back, there are people who are, who are worried that we're pulling back too quickly. So there is, there is another side as well. Does that answer your, your questions, Abby? I kind of went on in different ways. Sorry. No, it absolutely does. Thank you, Monique. We appreciate the insight. Now, Phil, turning to you, Monique covered some of the uh, the the concepts about democracy and how Canada is being perceived and the impact that that's having here in the states. There's also a financial impact, and you're our transportation guy on the call. Last week, the Ambassador Bridge was blocked. It's the busiest area of trade across the U.S.-Canadian border. And because of the blockage, Ford, Chrysler, GM, and other auto manufacturers with major operations in Ontario were forced to temporarily shut down operations due to supply issues caused by the blockade. A Michigan-based economic group estimated that almost $300 million U.S. million in production and wages were lost in just over that week of blockades. What can you tell us about the Ambassador Bridge and the significance of that blockade for cross-border trade? Yeah, uh, thanks, Avi. Um, I mean, it, I don't think we can underline enough just how critical that um, uh, that trade corridor is uh, for both Canada and the United States. And it's interesting, you know, as uh, somebody who grew up in Ontario, I went back and forth across that bridge many times and always thought it was, you know, just a phenomenal experience to, to drive across it. But, it, I mean, at the end of the day, it's also just a regular part of our day-to-day infrastructure. And I think maybe in some ways, uh, and I'm talking about the Ambassador Bridge specifically, but I think you could extend this to many other border crossings uh, across uh, North America, you know, we, we kind of underestimate how just how valuable they are until we don't have access to them. So, you know, you painted the picture in terms of the economic cost of, of not having commercial throughput across the bridge, and I think... Uh, it's around 10,000 commercial vehicles a day under normal times that go back and forth between Canada and the U.S. Um, you know, I can say from my perspective, uh, in terms of work that I'm involved in, uh, you know, very quickly, whether it was the automakers, whether it was other major commodity groups, um, you know, they were watching uh, with a lot of trepidation. And then when it became clear that the blockade uh, was actually stopping commercial traffic from going back and forth, uh, not surprisingly, very quickly, the major business groups <clears throat> in Canada launched uh, a very vocal and I think well-coordinated lobby. Uh, not that the government, I, I don't think, needed reminding of just how uh, detrimental it, it was and would continue to be as long as the, the bridge was blocked. But, um, you know, it was, um, it was sort of a, a non-stop full-time thing over the course of those, I think, four or five days that the bridge was closed. Um, uh, because it was costing, and there were, as, as you mentioned, you know, automakers who who paused operations, but then, you know, the spill down effect of other commodity groups um, whose orders weren't getting picked up or filled, um, you know, worrying about having to do the same. So it was, um, yeah, I would say it was a five alarm fire, and obviously many, many 
individuals and companies and, and sectors were relieved when um, uh, when it was reopened. But it was uh, it was a really stressful few days. And Tabby, not to lose lose sight of the rest of the country, like the Emerson Manitoba crossing is a seventy three million dollar a day uh crossing in goods and services. Alberta's Coots uh crossing is forty eight million dollars a day. Um and you know, Alberta was closed a lot longer. I mean that's a big impact to their to their uh provincial uh budget and uh and economy and I think we also have to think about the truckers who were stopped because of course it wasn't all the truckers who were involved in the blockade and certainly there were a number of truckers who were being rerouted out of Detroit, Windsor to over to Sarnia, adding hours to their trips and delay in the waiting and delay in the crossing. And so they were being limited in the amount of trips they could take because, of course, they have a limited number of hours that they can actually drive. And so it was impacting a lot of people's lives. And um, uh, just to show how uh, important um, the Detroit-Windsor crossing closing was, I mean, not only did it actually activate the provincial government, the federal government, the mayor of Windsor was out talking every single day on the news, um, but also just this week when a con- a, there was word that a convoy of trucks was heading back to the Windsor-Detroit bridge, it was like six or eight trucks, uh, they were immediately rerouted, uh, kind of taken found in transit and moved off so that it would not happen again and it would not start again. So certainly that crossing is definitely, they they are on alert now and keeping an eye because it is that important to both sides of the border. I mean, certainly we heard a lot of talk from uh, our American counterparts when the Detroit-Windsor Bridge was closed about the need to get it open and need to get the economy rolling again. So um, there was uh, that that certainly activated interest on the U.S. side more than probably the other the other clo- crossings. In, uh, in- Fantastic, Debbie, you, Monique, and- I was just. I hope you don't mind. I was just going to quickly add on to to what Monique said. You know, it's um, frankly not just about bridges either, right? Um, we are uh, a country with many important uh, commercial ports. Um, terminals, marine terminals, airports. Um, And so, you know, we uh, understood that there were plans to have coordinated blockades of our major airports, um, which thankfully did not materialize. But I think that is an important tieback to the kind of earlier chat we had about the Emergencies Act, because uh, one of the other things that's included in it is the our federal government's ability to designate critical infrastructure, which includes ports which includes bridges, which includes airports. Um, and and related to that, um, uh, you know, enforcement and authority, um, authorities, and, and also um, preventing assembly at those places if, if, it, um, if it is along the lines of the, the blockades we've seen. So another kind of important tie back to one of the, um, uh, I guess, provisions that's included in, um, in the Emergencies Act. Absolutely. Thank you both for the insight on that. And yeah, some really important points there. Uh, audience members who are just joining us now are reminded that you can get in the queue to ask a question if you dial star one. Our operators would be happy to assist you. And speaking of that now, we turn to our first audience question from Canada Institute Director Christopher Sands. So if we could welcome Chris into the call. And Chris, feel free to ask your question. Um, excellent. Uh, uh, thank you. You're doing a great job, and, and hello to Monique and to Phil. Uh, you are also doing a great job. 
maybe not surprisingly, my question really is on the role or lack of role or response from the United States in all of this. Um, there was a at one point right before the declaration of emergency, we had a blitz of calls from the president, from uh, Secretary Blinken, from Secretary Mayorkas and others, uh, talking mainly about the Ambassador Bridge situation, but also uh, reaching out. We had some private sector uh, firms uh, involved, you know, trying to talk about the blockages, but we also had GoFundMe and um, I think it's Give. Go something a, a second site that was involved in funding, and of course many citizens on Twitter on the web jumping in with with comments, um, which reminded me of Margaret Atwood's comment that the border is like a uh, a one way mirror or a two way mirror. The Canadians look down and see us, but we look up and we see ourselves because much of the commentary from sort of just ordinary people seem to be more reflective of the debates we have in the United States than. Of, uh, of any sort of Canadian reality uh, politically that I recognize. But if you could just reflect a little bit on the role of the U.S., uh, pro or con, helpful or hurtful, in, in just the last couple of weeks. Nick, do you want to go first on that? Sure. Thanks, Chris. Great to hear from you. Um, I don't think we can underestimate the role of the U.S. on, on two fronts. One is the funding. So on GoFundMe, uh, um, within the first kind of week, I think week and a half, they had raised uh, over $10 million, which in U.S. terms is a drop in the bucket. In Canadian terms is huge. Uh, when you consider Canadian electoral finance limits, uh, $10 million is kind of probably half of the national election campaign. Um, whereas I know in the States that's like half of one congressional seat campaign. So um, it's, uh, it, it was a huge amount of money. It started causing a lot of concern to a lot of people. And uh, they, the uh, government was able to step in um, and, uh, in, and convince GoFundMe to freeze the assets given one of the rules of GoFundMe, from what I understand, and I'm, I'm on thin ice here, but it was to uh, not to be able to provoke violence. And so on the basis that this funding was, uh, you know, there was a lot of rhetoric around the funding, uh, the donations, um, that this it could be frozen. When they took a deeper dive, it became apparent that about over 50% of the funding came from the U.S., um, and I think that caused a lot of concern to Canadians who, you know, had visions of the Capitol riots and the folks that were involved there and wondered where this money was coming from. Uh, same goes with the other funding, which um, which Chris alluded to. And again, I can't think of the three words either. It's give, get, go or something. Um, but it is, a, it is a, I, I believe, a Christian-based fundraiser. Uh, and again, there's much concern that a lot of that funding is coming from the U.S. There's no direct line to see how any of that funding is getting to the protest movement. Uh, there do seem to be a lot of resources on the ground in Ottawa. There are, uh, uh, there's a constant uh, convoy of gas coming into the downtown core to support the truckers. There seems to be constant food uh, supplies coming into the downtown core. Um, from what I understand, just to give a little context on the Ottawa uh, setup, there are there's the main camp encampment, which is in front of Parliament Hill and the Prime Minister's office and down the major corridors in downtown Ottawa. And then there are 
satellite encampments further out uh, on the city outskirts where supplies are being brought in in large loads and then broken down and taken into the city core. Um, so they, somebody's paying for all of that, and that funding, uh, some of it, a good portion of it is understood as coming from the states, which is a concern. Um, and then there's the kind of coverage that uh, Fox News and other outlets uh, are propagating, which are uh, very concerning to Canadians who, you know, as I said from the polling, the, the protesters do not reflect the majority of Canadians, and certainly it's a minority, and in some cases, um, particularly the very outrageous um, protesters, it's a very small minority. So uh, the fact that this is being propagated through American news channels uh, to the world is is very concerning. Uh, Bill, did you have anything you wanted to add to that? Uh, the only other additional comment I'd make, Manik, is... Um you know, I think, again, this is a very maybe kind of inside Ottawa view, but the way that we were perceiving uh, over the last couple of weeks, not just the reporting, but even just conversations around the, the discussion, the cross-border discussion between Ottawa and D.C. specifically in terms of the situation that was unfolding up here is um, sort of twofold. One, um, you know, in terms of the message from from the White House and President Biden, you know, we are here to support you however we can, but with the subtext of, like, get your house in order <laughs> in terms of the impact, uh, not just on Canada, but also on, you know, whether it's business and trade interests or otherwise in the United States. And so uh, I, th I think that the Trudeau government was feeling that pressure in terms of, um, in terms of needing to act. And obviously those calls for, you know, action were coming from every corner, right? Local citizens, major business groups, politicians. Um, and so I think, you know, as much as it was a supportive, an overall supportive message from, from D.C. in particular, um, I think there was also a subtext of uh, let's, let's get this under control. And that was certainly the message that I think came through from people like, um, like Governor Whitmer in, in Michigan. For sure. Great. They, they, Thank you. The so governor, much. sorry, Zavi, the governor's uh, intervention definitely got things rolling uh, and other politicians. I also point out that just in the last couple of days, uh, Canadian senators, who are a very different breed from U.S. senators, but Canadian senators have been getting tons of calls from Americans uh, against the Emergencies Act and arguing that the protesters have a right to protest and that they should be listened to. Um, so it's interesting that the uh, Americans are flooding the phone lines of, of Canadian senators to try and block the Emergencies Act. Just a little anecdote. Thank you, Monique. And the magic words we were looking for is give, send, go. That's the crowdfunding platform that's U.S.-based and has been used to facilitate most of the donations, 92,000 of them, totaling more than $8 million, according to leaked data. 4.3 million of that came from Canadian donors, and 3.6 originated from the United States. That's data from Monday. Now we turn again. Thank you, Chris, for the question, and thank you, Monique and Phil, for the insights. We turn to Andrew Bowles, who is on the line with a question. Andrew? Uh, good morning. Thanks very much. So we know, we know that a number of the organizers of the uh, of the the convoy have ties to Western separatist parties and and other groups, and some have uh, have even said that their intent is to overthrow the government and and uh, arrest MPs. 
Uh, how likely is it that truckers who may have concerns about vaccines, et cetera, uh, have been merely a tool for organizers who have other intentions? Thank you. I'll take a first go at that. Um, without sounding like a conspiracy theorist, certainly there is a there is a line of thought that uh, a lot of this is driven not by the truckers, but that the truckers' protest allowed a vehicle for um, this uh, this anti-vax, anti-government involvement movement to really just take hold. Um, I think that there's uh, there is evidence that. Uh, uh, certainly, there there was a contingent in Alberta that were arrested. They arrested 13 individuals, um, and some some of whom were charged with conspiracy to commit murder. Uh, there was a weapons and ammunition cache in Alberta that was seized, um, and I think that rose that raised the level of concern across the country about what this protest in various parts of the country, but particularly in downtown Ottawa, involved. And I think it also fed into concern around enforcement and um, how many of those trucks contain weapons. Uh, you know, what are, you know, are the truckers there because they're concerned as truckers about their livelihood or are they there because they've been asked to be there by their employers or paid to be there by others? Um, there's there's concern about who is behind this. Uh, obviously, many of you will have heard that uh, over the weekend there was a story in the Globe and Mail about uh, some of the leadership coming from former military, uh, Canadian military, uh, Canadian intelligence people. And the setup that's being described with the outer camps and the inner camp and the organization of and movement of goods and supports for people um, would indicate that there are people involved who are experienced in setting up this type of uh, encampment. Uh, so it's uh, it does cause great concern. Um, the other piece, and this is not to do with um, with your question in particular, but I do think it's of interest and I did want to uh, flag it, is the presence of children. Um, the some of the truckers have children in their in their trucks with them. Many people, many protesters bring children to the protests. Uh, some see this as being a way of keeping the police at bay because police are less likely to get uh, violence or, or to, to get, sorry, violence the wrong word, but to get aggressive uh, if there are children in the vicinity. And so some see these children as being used as shields in this particular uh, occupation. Um, and that's a big concern. We have seen over the last 24 hours uh, and I think Phil referred to this in the be in the beginning of this piece. Um, notices being given to all the protesters in downtown Ottawa that uh, active that enforcement was going to be taking place shortly. Uh, yesterday they were giving white notices. Today they were giving red notices. Together with those notices, they have, there have been notices provided by the Children's Aid Society advising that if children are are in the vicinity and found to be at risk and that they would be taken into custody by the Children's Aid Society. And um, not to make light of it, but this morning as well, there were notices by the Humane Society saying that if your animal was found in your, uh, in your truck and you were taken into custody, that your animals would be taken into custody by the Humane Society. So, um, you know, the on the ground, the the enforcement, the police enforcement, has definitely stepped up its activity and is looking at all options 
certainly making everyone aware of what's going to happen moving forward. Absolutely. Phil, do you have any thoughts on the situation as someone based in Ottawa? Uh, yeah, maybe. And first off, Andrew, uh, we haven't talked in quite a while, but I hope you're doing well. Thanks for the question. Um, you know, to your question, just in terms of the original roots of, of this, at least from a public perspective of this being a protest of uh, truckers who were opposed to vaccine mandates, I mean, from from really early on, and I mean, it should be said, you know, th there are likely some of those individuals who had valid questions as to as to the reason for vaccine mandates, you know, they were entitled to ask those questions. But I think from really early on, it became apparent, um, especially once the group, the original convoy protest landed in Ottawa on January 29th and sort of set up shop. And then we saw visually a lot of what else was being lifted into this quote unquote trucker uh, protest. You know, we had the Canadian Trucking Alliance and all of the largest, if well, most, if not all, of the largest trucking companies in Canada coming out and saying that the vaccine mandate was not an issue for them and that they were not supportive of the protests, at least the Canadian Trucking Alliance was, was not supportive. Um, and then when you look at a few other things, like the number that has been used and cited up here extensively is that 90% of Canadian truckers are fully vaccinated and were before this all began plus the fact that there are vaccine requirements on the U.S. side of the border. So for any trucker going back and forth, it's not just about Canadian requirements. It's also about dealing with requirements on the U.S. side of the border, which sort of got forgotten along the way. Um, so I think I think it, it very quickly morphed. And, and maybe originally it never was about, about truckers, but that was certainly what was put in the window for, for the general public. Um, and, you know, we had politicians, federal politicians here who, uh, who, you know, very early on supported the protest from a trucker support perspective, but I, very quickly that's obviously um, sort of all devolved. So, um, yeah, I think, I mean, I think, again, a lot of postmortems will be done once we're hopefully through this situation, and I think one will be sort of the roots of this, where it came from, how it was financed, and... Um, and unfortunately, I think in some cases, uh, Canadian truckers may have been kind of just used as, as bait to, to pursue this. Great. Thank you both. And thank you, Andrew, for the question. We're heading into the last 20 minutes of our call. So I want to remind all callers that if you have a question and you want to get in the queue, you can dial star one and ask your question. We turn now to Dana Eyre with an audience question. Dana, take it away. Hi. Yeah, um, kind of a double-barreled question uh you know we've been talking a lot about funding i'm wondering if uh, uh how that plays into kind of the the funding and particularly the tie to uh potential american funding from you know kind of major donor right-wing donors not just the crowdsource but also the, the the kind of the the major donor groups if if substantial information has been revealed about that in term in into the 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 to the Canadian public and and how that then plays into kind of you know the Canadian political narrative and and does it activate the kind of you know traditional light motif of Canadian anti-americanism Thanks Dana um, I'll jump ahead, in Dana. I I think that uh there I mean we have we do not have details 
my understanding is we do not have details of big American donors. We know the money's coming from the states. We don't necessarily have have it tied to particulars. We did have a leak uh, in of the and Zavi, I'm going to forget the name. Give go. Give go. Give send go. Uh, we, there was a hack done uh, and a leak of individual donors, um, and that has had some repercussions in Canada, particularly um, in, in one instance in Ontario where a political staffer of the uh, Solicitor General. So the Solicitor General in Ontario is the person responsible for law enforcement. Her director of communications had donated $100 to the trucker uh, protest. <laughs> and, it, and the timing of the donation was not good. <laughs> not good when the Premier had just come out saying, this is ridiculous, it's got to stop. Uh, and anyway, she lost her job. So uh, there, are, there, there have been repercussions for those who've donated. Uh, there have also been, anecdotally, I think this morning in the paper, there was a story about someone whose name was leaked as having donated with a business owner, and uh, there were repercussions against that business owner in Ottawa for having donated to the truckers. So it, it kind of flies both ways, um, and it's, uh, it's a concern. Um, I think in the postmortem, as Phil said, there's going to be a lot more digging into how how we manage these kind of fundraising activities around protests and how we can track. Uh, I think the Emergencies Act gives more powers to the government to do that tracking and to do a little more detective work. It gives them the ability to freeze accounts. Uh, where they suspect activity. Um, there was discussion in the news last night about the banks being able to do that freezing, like they need more direction on what it is they're supposed to be looking for and how they freeze accounts. Uh, and I think that's being, you know, kind of worked out as we speak, uh, and, uh, but could have implications in the coming days. And again, in the postmortem, uh, I think there'll be a discussion about how we, how we manage that more clearly and efficiently and transparently in the future. Bill, did you have anything to add on that? Uh, I guess the only additional comment, you know, um, to the question is, um, you know, as, as many, many people on, on the call, I'm sure, know and will appreciate, you know, there are certainly ongoing trade issues, whether it's potatoes or EV tariffs or, or other things that are, you know, dominating a lot of the conversation, at least up until the last three weeks, um, between Ottawa and D.C. in particular. Um, you know, the, the financing aspect of this uh, situation, you know, that may be um, something that's dug into, you know, in more detail moving forward in terms of, uh, of U.S. involvement in any of that. But I do think that there's a, a sort of acceptance that... Um, those who have been financing it, you know, whether from uh, whether from within Canada or from elsewhere, uh, represent a certain set of views, um, and I don't I don't anticipate that that's going to have any sort of direct knock-on effect on sort of the broader U.S.-Canada relationship. I think it will be um, sort of pretty s- specifically carved off into this very unusual situation and and the specifics of it, as opposed to anything broader than that. Great. Thank you both, and thank you, Dana, for your question. We're coming into the last 10 minutes of this briefing, so we're going to start to wrap things up, and I want to give you both 
the opportunity to get a last word in. I'll prompt you by asking, where do we go from here? And that could apply to Canada with vaccine mandates or handling protests and emergencies in the future. It could apply to the U.S. and handling trade disruptions with Canada and how the U.S. looks at Canada um, as a country and as a society going forward. Monique, why don't we start with you? Great. Thanks, Abby. I think, uh, I think we see the, we're seeing uh, on the horizon the, uh, the taming of Omicron and uh, the lifting of mandates, uh, which is, uh, you know, some people are ready for that, as, as we've seen with the protesters, and some people aren't. So we'll continue to see, I think, a society in a state of flux as we battle this pandemic on a, on a worldwide uh, perspective, and particularly in Canada. Um, and, you know, how that impacts our border crossings uh, and, and our travel and our trade, uh, I think, will continue to, uh, to, to be an issue uh, moving forward. I think on the border crossings front, I think this has been a wake-up call for us to see how sensitive uh, our border crossings are and uh, how we need to do better on managing um, the flow uh, and uh, ensuring the flow uh, because it, it is such an important link between our two, they all the border crossings are such important links between our two countries. Um, I don't think we can lose sight of the fact that as as Zavi talked about at the very beginning, you know, the Canada U.S. relationship is the second largest bilateral trade relationship in the world. Uh, U.S. is our biggest trading partner, uh, our friend, our ally, and uh, you know as as the world looks at things like what's happening in the Ukraine, you know, Canada and the U.S. will be standing side by side and continue to do so. Um, I think that, uh, you know, we can't, while this is, I, I agree with Phil, I think this on the, this is a unique situation. Um, and I think there's going to be a lot of, uh, a lot of postmortem done on this to ensure that uh, things like this can't happen again. And, and, uh, that we can't get to this place again, um, but that we continue to work with our neighbors to ensure that uh, that neither side is negatively impacted by activities like this in the future. And uh, just one last thing, Zavi, from me, um, you know, did I, I think Canadians recognize the importance of the U.S. to uh, to our trade, but also as an important uh, neighbor. We all have ties to the U.S. And, um, you know, despite our victory last night in hockey, yay, Canada, just had to get a day okay. savvy. Uh, I, I think that we will continue to have a very strong relationship with our American cousins and friends. Thank you, Monique. And, yes, go Team Canada. Great win for the women's team last night in Beijing. Phil, a last thought from you? Yeah, uh, just a couple of quick ones from you, Zavi. You know, one is um, obviously aside from sort of the dubious players who've been um, involved in this situation that's unfolded over the last few weeks up here, obviously it was also, uh, it pulled in um, support, frankly, from uh, from others, right, from other Canadians. So Manik mentioned the polling you know, in the numbers in the last kind of few major polls, it's been anywhere from 60 to 70 percent of Canadians are opposed. But uh, interestingly, the number of Canadians who are supportive of the convoy protest, it ebbs and flows anywhere from sort of 25 to percent to the sort of the low 30s. And, you know, that's not an, um, 
that's not an unimportant number. And so, you know, the fact of the matter is in terms of vaccines, like we are all collectively tired and worn out after a very long couple of years. And we are, you know, seeing a light at the end of the tunnel and hoping that things can get back to quote unquote normal. Um, but for Justin Trudeau and his government, I mean, you know, there are some, some tricky situations and uh, dynamics that he has to continue to navigate. So from a political perspective, um, uh, you know, I think these will be interesting uh, weeks and months ahead. I think another thing <clears throat> that this situation has really illustrated and which will be uh, a, a learning and an ongoing, I think, discussion and debate is um, security and policing. And then related to that, sort of how do jurisdictions in Canada, uh, not just in Ottawa, but across the country, like how do they work together when these kinds of crises unfold? You know, just for, for people on the phone who aren't familiar with the geography of Ottawa and sort of what's unfolding, <clears throat> about 35 or 40 feet from the front door of the Prime Minister's office at 80 Wellington uh, is where this installation or parts of this installation are set up. There's actually a row of, or there were, a row of porta potties set up right outside the front door. And trucks parked, like, you know, hundreds of feet from the front door of where, of our seat of government, potentially with, with weapons inside. Like, it's just kind of an unimaginable situation. And the fact of the matter is, whether it's Washington, D.C., or other world capitals or major cities, like, this, this wouldn't happen necessarily in other places. And so I think there's going to be a lot of uh, sort of difficult questions and conversations, but really important ones to be asked moving forward in terms of law enforcement, in terms of security, uh, and in terms of ensuring that these kinds of situations cannot um, manifest again. I think that that is, is a really important takeaway from from what overall has been an incredibly unfortunate situation. But on we go, and, uh, you know, uh, we need to get those things sorted clearly. So I'm sure uh, I'm sure that will be happening. Yeah, and a good note to end on. We hope that you and your family stay safe in Ottawa, Phil. And I want to thank Monique Smith and Phil Cartwright for joining us today. Thank you both. It was so great to have you on this briefing. And a big thanks to our audience as well who is listening from home, especially those of you who volunteered your questions. Now, if you liked what you heard today and you want to play it back, you can find a recording of this event on our website at wilsoncenter.org, where you can also join our mailing list, find more content, and if you really like this event, find out how you can contribute to our programming. Also consider following us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn for more events and content. But for now, from the Canada Institute at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars, I'm Zavi Delgado. Have a pleasant day. Thank you. And that concludes today's conference. Thank you for joining. You may now disconnect. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Speakers, please stand by.